Welcome to the Invictus Church Podcast. We're grateful that you've chosen to listen, and we want to invite you to join us each week as we upload new content. Our prayer each week is that those who listen in would not just be stirred or inspired, but also changed. Now, get ready for life change with this week's message from Invictus Church. Sometimes life throws us difficulties inconveniences, and sometimes even tragedies that God uses in our lives to turn into victory. Now, you might be saying, well, that's nice if I get a flat tire and God uses it to keep me from getting in a 25-car pileup, but what about when I'm in the pileup? It's nice that God saved the lives of these people in the video that we just saw with inconveniences and they missed the tragedy on 9-11. But what about all the people that were in 9-11? Can God use those? Can God use those big, really difficult things in our lives? In this series, we're talking about Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It is our core verse as we're going through this whole series. And it says this, and we guess that in all things, right? What does it say? All right, come on, help me out. What does it say? And we know that in how many things? Most things. All things. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What this verse of Scripture tells us is that God is in control. Ever felt like your life was out of control? Oh yeah, me too. Plenty of times. But nothing that is under God's control is ever out of control. That's why this verse tells us that those who love God and are called according to his purposes, those who have submitted their lives to him and said, I'm not going to live my way, Lord. I'm going to surrender my life to you. I'm going to trust everything in my life to you. When you do that, your life is under his control. And nothing that is under his control is ever out of control. Now, this doesn't mean that God controls everything. If somebody does something horrible to you, God didn't make that person do that. It means that when something horrible happens to you, when someone hurts you, when someone cheats you, when someone does something bad, when a a, a tragedy strikes in your life and someone dies or you lose a job or whatever it is, you're diagnosed with some horrible disease, whatever the tragedy, whatever the difficulty, God will use it because he gets the last word. Other people may hurt you, but God will use it because he gets the last word. What we call this is sovereignty. That's the big theological word. Everybody say sovereignty. Sovereignty. God is sovereign. That means he has the final say, period. At the end of the day, at the end of time, God's going to make all wrong things right. God is sovereign. Say that with me. Say, God is sovereign. 
God is sovereign. If you don't remember anything else that we talk about in this series, remember that. God is sovereign. There's a guy in the Bible who experienced God's sovereignty in a big, big way. His name is Joseph. He's in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 37 through 50. Now, go ahead and turn in your Bibles if you would there, but we're not going to read the whole story. In fact, I'm going to give you a summary of the story, and then we're going to go back and we're going to read a few bits of it. Uh, yeah, we're not going to read all 13 chapters that would take quite a while, but um, uh, Joseph had a really amazing story. Anybody ever heard of the play Joseph, uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat? That's the play written about this story. There was this guy named Joseph who was one of 12 brothers. He was the 11th. He was the second youngest of 12 brothers. Can you imagine how bad that house must have smelled? <laughs> 12 boys living in it. Oh my goodness. I've got teenage boys and when we pick them up from their athletic events, I mean, it's like you need a gas mask in the car. It's pretty bad. I cannot imagine having 12 of those in my house at the same time. And so here's 12 boys all living together and Joseph is number 11. And Joseph has it pretty good because he's daddy's favorite. Now his dad, Jacob, he made some pretty significant mistakes when you read about his life. And one of them is that he picked a favorite. He had a favorite kid. And he was unashamed about it. He let the other guys know that Joseph was the favorite. Maybe he didn't stand up at a family meeting and say, just for the record, this one's my favorite. But he did all kinds of things to show his favoritism to Joseph and gave him special treatment. And he bought him this really fancy Gucci coat that had a lot of colors on it. Now, I don't know what it really looked like. I mean, at the time, dyeing fabric was a very, very difficult thing. And so here's a coat with lots of colors on it, whether it was stripes or tie-dyed. We don't know. It might have had sequins on it. And maybe the first sequins were invented. And maybe it was sparkly and it was bedazzled. We don't know. But it was special because it had a lot of colors on it. And that meant expensive. That meant rare. And Joseph, number 11 out of 12, Got it. None of the other brothers got it. He was special. And the other brothers were naturally jealous. They were jealous. So they decided one day to beat him up and throw him in a hole. Uh, and the reason they threw him in a hole is because they were arguing about what they were going to do with him. They agreed on this one thing. None of us like Joseph. But we're not sure what we're going to do about it. So they threw him in a hole while they argued with each other about what they were going to do with Joseph. Have you ever been a hole in your life? You felt like, man, you just fell in a pit and something out of the blue hits you. You got a diagnosis or somebody called you on the phone with news you really didn't want to hear. And man, suddenly, bam, you're in the bottom of a hole. You know what the interesting thing about a hole? There's only one way to look. Up. And so there's Joseph looking up and listening to his brothers. And that was God's way of saying, do I have your attention yet? Sometimes God uses pain as a megaphone in our lives because many times he's a gentleman and he whispers to us and he talks calmly to us and he tries to talk rationally to us, but we are fools and we don't listen. And so the Lord will often use difficulties in our lives to scream, do I have your attention now? Listen, trust me, believe in me, follow me. I know what's best even now when you're in the bottom of your hole. And so here's Joseph in the bottom of his hole, and his brothers are arguing about, what do we do with him? Do we kill him? Wow. 
That's like the kind of brotherly love that Dallas Cowboy fans experience when they go to the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? Anybody here like the Dallas Cowboys besides me? One of you, one Christian in the whole room besides myself. (laughs) I'm going to pray for the rest of you horrible sinners. Man, I love the Dallas Cowboys, but people in Philadelphia hate the Dallas Cowboys. And the Dallas Cowboys have interesting experiences and Dallas Cowboy fans frequently there are fights. But what, what does Philadelphia mean? It comes from the word phileo, which is brotherly love. It's the city of brotherly love. Unless you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, then we're going to kill you, right? We're going to spit on you, we're going to beat you up, and we're going to do all kinds of nasty things to you just because you like blue and silver. And um, it's, it's crazy. But Here's his brothers supposed to be loving him. Some of them saying, we're going to treat you like a Dallas Cowboy fan in Philly. We're going to kill you. And others are just saying, no, let's not kill him. You know what that would do to dad? I mean, if we really killed him, let's spare his life. Others were like, let's find a compromise. Let's pretend he's dead. We'll take his fancy jacket, we'll cut it up, and we'll throw a bunch of lamb's blood on it. And we'll tell dad that we found it and that Joseph was devoured by a wild animal. And then we can make a little bit of money. We can sell him as a slave. Suddenly the brothers are like, yeah, you know, if we kill him, we don't get anything out of it. We sell him. He's going to go off to Timbuktu. We're never going to see dude again. We got some cash. Have a weekend in Vegas. And so they sell their brother to slave traders. And these slave traders carry him miles and miles and miles and miles and miles away to Egypt. And there they sell him to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar was a powerful man in Egypt. He was a wealthy man. He had a household full of servants. And Joseph proved himself to be a really good servant and soon got promoted to chief servant. He was like the manager of all the servants. And so Joseph's running around. He's doing all this great stuff. Here's Joe running the household. Everybody's like, great. He's the best maid we got. He's the best butler we got. He's the best driver we got. He's the best everything we got. Let's put him in charge of everything. He's running the house and everything's clicking. It's fantastic. And Joseph also happened to be quite cute. And Potiphar's wife noticed that. She said, wow. I mean, she got excited when she saw Joseph, and she tried to tempt Joseph. She's like, come on, baby. Here I'm in the bedroom. Potiphar's at work. Who cares what Potsy has to say, man? He's gone. Come on in here. He's not going to know. Let's have a little fun. And Joseph said, I'm never going to do this with you, lady, because I don't want to dishonor Potiphar, and I will not dishonor my God. He chose in the presence of a powerful, probably beautiful, wealthy woman to stay on the straight and narrow. And so one day she corners him. She gets in a room by himself and she starts doing whatever. And she's trying to get Joseph to do whatever with her. And he takes off running. You know what's interesting? In the Bible, uh, we are never taught in Scripture to fight sexual temptation. When you face sexual temptation, the Bible never says fight it. The Bible always says flee it, run away, get in the other room, go as far and as fast as you can. And Joseph took off running so fast that when she grabbed his clothes, 
his servant's cloak, whatever it was, it must have been made of cheap fabric, bought at Walmart. (laughs) It tore right off of his body, and he ran out of there naked. Now, she concocts this great story, and who's not going to believe her? I mean, after all, she's rich and powerful, and here's a naked guy running out of the room. She decides, I'm going to scream rape. And she says, me too. This guy has assaulted me. He's done horrible things to me. And everybody believes her because who wouldn't? He's running away naked. Potiphar, naturally, is not happy about this. I gave you control of my whole house, and you try to rape my wife? He throws Joseph in prison. So here's Joseph. He was 17 years old, sold into slavery, becomes the top slave, gets falsely accused of a crime, thrown in prison. He used to be daddy's favorite, and now he's an inmate. But he was a good inmate. He paid attention to the warden. He listened well. He did a, people actually started to listen to him and to follow him. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of the prison. So now he's a prisoner telling all the other prisoners what to do. And while he was in prison, he became known for a particularly odd skill. He could accurately interpret people's dreams. And so one day, the Pharaoh... Now, the Pharaoh, in case you don't know, he was the king of Egypt, and that was the first major civilization in the world. And this massive civilization was the first world power on earth. And here's the king, the Pharaoh of the first world power. He is the most powerful man on the planet. He has a weird dream that he can't explain, and it's freaking him out. And he's calling all of his wise men and his magicians and his sages and all of these experts in. And they're like, well, you don't know what it is, man. Maybe it was bad burritos. And the Pharaoh's like, I don't believe that. This, is a, this dream means something. And then one of the guys that happened to be in, in prison with uh, uh, Joseph a while back, Joseph had interpreted a dream, and now the guy's working for the king. And he says, hey, you know what? There's a dude named Joseph in the prison, and Joe could probably interpret your dream. And the Pharaoh's like, bring him in. And so Joseph, here comes Joe, dressed up as a prisoner, walks in in front of the king, probably in shackles, probably forced down onto his knees. And the king says, you know, interpret this dream. And uh, he tells Joseph this weird dream, and Joseph interprets it. And the Pharaoh's like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Now, here's the crazy thing about the dream. Joseph tells him, your dream means there's going to be seven years of intense, great stuff. I mean, everything good is going to happen to Egypt. We're going to have plenty. You're going to have more grain than you need, more food than you need. Man, you're going to have more animals than you need. Everything is going to be fantastic. And then it's going to be seven years of recession. Seven years of famine. It's not going to be raining much, and people are going to be starving, and they're going to start looking at their neighbor next door and thinking, hmm, that guy looks pretty yummy. Maybe I'll have steak tonight and eat my neighbor. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be freaking out and getting hungry, and, and things are not going to be going well for Egypt. And the Pharaoh's like, well, what do we do? I'm, I'm the king. In fact, he claimed the Pharaoh was believed to be a god to the people. Well, if I'm a god i got to have a solution for this. I need help. And Joseph said, well, here's what you need to do. For seven years, you're going to have more than you need, so save up a bunch. 
set back a bunch of grain, a whole bunch of beef jerky, stuff like that, the things that uh, will preserve, stockpile that so you'll have plenty for seven years when there's not a lot and everything's going to be great. And the Pharaoh made the craziest move in political history. He took this guy straight from the prison, made him vice president. I'm going to put you in charge. You're vice Pharaoh. You're now the second most powerful man in the world. I'm putting you in charge of the kingdom. Put your plan into action. Daddy's favorite gets sold into slavery, becomes a slave, goes to prison, becomes vice president. Yeah, that story makes sense. Joseph gets put in charge of everything. And then, after all these years of plenty, and they've saved up all kinds of stuff, famine hits. After seven years of plenty, seven years of family strike, or famine strikes. And two years into that, Joseph's brother back home, his brothers, are all sitting around with their dad, Jacob. And Jacob's like, we're starving. This famine's hit. We got nothing but... Over in Egypt, they're still doing well. Hey, guys, go to Egypt and find out what's up. And so Joseph's brothers go on a caravan, long road trip to Egypt, and they get there, and they walk in, and they stand before this guy who's in charge. And it happens to be their brother. Now, they don't recognize him. Why? I don't know. It's been about 22 years since they've seen him. So he's probably changed a little bit from the time that he was uh, 17 years old. And uh, maybe when he was 17, he had a little fuzzy beard because he was um, uh, a, a Hebrew person. And, and uh, they, uh, in their tradition, had beards. I don't know. This was before the traditions of the Israelites and whatnot. But I would imagine his family probably wore beards. And in Egypt, all the hieroglyphics show the powerful people in Egypt. And what are they? They're clean-shaven. Smooth faces, so he's probably all smooth. And we know that the pharaohs, they, they kind of liked, you know, the whole Boy George thing where they put on the makeup and stuff. And, and uh, so uh, here's Joseph probably wearing a strange headdress with a shiny, smooth face and a lot of makeup. He probably looks like a, a combination of Lady Gaga and Nicki Minaj. And um, so he's there with all this stuff, dressed up all funky, standing there, behold me in my glory, I am in charge. And his brothers walk in. And he sees them and recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So he's a human. He messes with them for a little while. We won't get all into that part of the story, but it is kind of entertaining. So I encourage you to go in and read uh, this whole story from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. But he messes with his brothers for a little while. And then finally, he's like, no, seriously, I'm going to help you guys. And he helps them, and he says, go back home, get dad, bring him here, and bring all of our family and all of our household. And they came into Egypt, and they were saved by the brother that they had betrayed. God used all these awful things in Joseph's life. But Joseph continued to trust him, continued to love him, was called according to his purpose, and what did God do with Joseph's story? He revised it. His life was headed one way. Everything in his life pointed one direction, but God revised his story. Why? Because God is sovereign. Trusting in God's sovereignty requires two major shifts in the way that you think. 
Big paradigm shifts. And here they are. The first one is this, a shift from entitlement to gratitude. We talked about that last week. Last week we talked about how entitlement and gratitude can never be in the same space. You can't be grateful and feel entitled at the same time. You can't be grateful for a Christmas present while at the same time thinking, it should be bigger. You remember Dudley from Harry Potter? Last year I had 13 presents or whatever, and this year there's only 12, you know. I mean, what a whiny brat, man. If that was me as a kid, my dad would have done this. Right up inside the back of the head. Take away a present. Not, oh, we'll go to the store and buy you another one, Dudley. I mean, that's just ridiculous. You cannot be grateful and entitled at the same time. You can't be. And so if we want to see God at work in our life, we can't be whiny and going, I deserve better. We have to say, thank you, God, that I have what I have. And when we're grateful, we'll begin to see God working in our lives. If you missed last week, I encourage you to go online and listen to that message. But the second paradigm shift that we've got to think about today is this one. We've got to shift our thinking from short-term thinking to eternal thinking. Short-term thinking to eternal thinking. In the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, there's a lot of great teachings about how to handle money. And one of the big differences between people who are wealthy and people who are poor is people who are poor tends to think about money in the short term. I've got to have this to pay off so-and-so in the next week, to pay off so-and-so in the next two weeks. So they go to the check cashing service and they get their paycheck cashed early so that they can get things paid off now. And then they owe a whole bunch of debt and they're not thinking about where's the money going later? What am I going to do later? But the guy who owns the check cashing service, he's thinking about the money long term. And he's thinking, I'll give you some money today, and you're going to give me a whole lot more money later. And I'm going to pad my pockets, and you're going to be broke, and I'm probably going to send you to collections at some point. What's the difference? One guy's thinking long term. One guy's thinking short term. As followers of Jesus, we have to take it another step further. We have to think eternal. This isn't about what we're going to do in five years or 10 years or 50 years. This isn't about what we're going to leave our children when we're gone. We have to think about what is God's plan for all eternity. All of eternity. God knows everything because he exists outside of time. You and I see time like this. We see one point right down. We remember the points that are behind us. The older we get, the fewer of those points we remember So we can remember those, but we don't know what's happening next until it happens. God is outside of time. He sees it all like a line stretched out in front of him on a piece of paper. He sees the whole paper. Here's time. He's experiencing it all right now. God is not surprised by what's coming next and what came before. He knows it all. He is sovereign, and he has a plan for everything on that line. So even the stuff that we try to mess up... (laughs) try to mess up. Come on. God's like, I just have to move this here, move this here, and move. And I know exactly how it's all going to turn out. I am sovereign. When we learn to have God's perspective, and, and we'll never have it completely because we're not God, and because we're bound by time, we live within it. But when we learn to zoom out and think big about what's God going to do with my story in eternity, 
It changes the way that we look at our lives. When you zoom out, and I want you to do this today, I want you to zoom way out on your suffering. Think about something in your life right now that is particularly difficult. Think about something in your life that is particularly painful, something that hurts. Maybe someone hurt you or betrayed you, or maybe someone died or something was taken from you, or you're sick, or there's something in your life, some burden that you're carrying that if you could do away with it right now, you would. I want you to think about that thing and I want you to zoom out as far as you can. And I want you to think about it in these three contexts. Number one, write this down. God will not protect you from what he will protect you through. He will not protect you from what he will perfect you through. There's a theological term called sanctification. It means this, God is perfecting you. God is changing you. You ever wonder why Christians aren't as nice as they ought to be? I wonder that a lot until I look at myself and I'm going, oh, I'm not as nice as I ought to be. I'm a mess. It's because we are in the process of being sanctified. The reason Christians are not perfect is because we're being perfected slowly, but surely. Sometimes it's more slowly than surely. I mean, you ever met that really super grouchy Christian that you're like, man, how is that person even a Christian? Well, imagine what they were like 20 years ago. God's changing them. God's still working on me. God's still working on us. He is perfecting us. And many times he uses the difficult things in our lives because he has a plan to grow us and change us and perfect us through them. Look at what happened to Joseph. Genesis 37, verse 28. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver, and the traders took him to Egypt. Then when we skip ahead to Genesis 39.2, the Lord was with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. And then Genesis 39, 17 through 22. Then she told him her story. That Hebrew slave you brought into our house tried to come in and fool around with me, she said. But when I screamed, he ran outside, leaving his cloak with me. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about Joseph, or how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him in the prison where the king's prisoners were held, and there he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners over everything that happened in the prison. Pharaoh said in Genesis 41, 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land. Those are some pretty powerful snippets from his story. Awful stuff. God used for good. Awful stuff, God used for good. And then God used all of it for great. What was God doing by making Joseph a slave and then the chief slave and a prisoner and then the chief prisoner? He was preparing him. He was perfecting him for the purpose that God had created Joseph for. Joseph could not have become the man God intended him to be without first being a slave and second being a prisoner. What you're going through now, God may be using that to perfect you. 
What in your life needs to grow and needs to change that you can learn from this? You know, a lot of people say, I I wish the Lord would make me patient. The movie Bruce Almighty said some great light on this when God, Morgan Freeman, is talking to Bruce and he says, you think when you pray, Lord, make me patient, that he's just suddenly going to make you patient or is he going to give you opportunities to be patient? He's going to allow painful things, annoying things, difficult things, and maybe even tragic things in your life to change you into a patient person. Maybe the Lord's trying to make you patient and you're just in the middle of your pain every day screaming, get me out of this now! And he's saying, change. And I'll use it. Be who I want you to be in the middle of what you're going through. I'm using this to perfect you. God will not protect you from what he will perfect you through. He has a plan for you, and it's not about your happiness. His plan is for your holiness. It's to shape you and make you better and more like what he intends you to be. Second thing I want you to write down as you're zooming out your perspective, God will not spare you from what he will save others through. Maybe what God is allowing to happen in your life, he's going to use to save other people. God will not spare you from what he will save others through. Genesis 42, 1 and 2. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said this to his sons. Why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. Genesis 45, 5 and 7. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place, Joseph says. It was God who sent me ahead of you to preserve your lives. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. You see, there's a principle at work in the universe. Salvation always comes through suffering. Always. Salvation always comes through suffering. Without suffering, what do we have to be saved from? Salvation comes through suffering. Suffering creates the environment where salvation is needed. And salvation is then only provided when somebody outside the suffering chooses to come into it and be a part of it and rescue those who are on the inside. God used Jesus and his suffering to provide salvation for anyone who believes. And he will use your suffering if you let him to provide salvation for others. Here's the principle. God never wastes a hurt. What he is allowing in your life, he can use to change the lives of other people. If you're not in a small group in our church, you're going to miss out this week. We've got a small group a series of videos that we're using with our groups and teaching uh, in conjunction with this series. And this week, you're going to see a video of a young man named uh, uh, Pierce O'Farrell. And Pierce uh, is in Aurora, Colorado. And he was there in the movie theater the night that uh, the... Uh, 
Batman the Dark Knight premiered and the gunman came in and started shooting people and Pierce was hit three times. Pierce survived and God used his being shot to bring his brother to salvation in Christ. And Pierce says in the video, if all it took was a bullet for my brother to come to know Jesus, shoot me 10 more times. You see, God will not spare you from what he will save others through. God had a plan for Pierce that night as he was laying there in a movie theater bleeding. He was going to use that to save his brother from hell. If you're not in a small group, I encourage you to get in one. Small groups are simply places where we gather together with other people from our church and we share our burdens with each other. And we've got some discussion material and some study material that we're providing during this series. Uh, If you don't have a small group, you can go online to our website and you can find one. You can go straight out these doors at the end of the service and walk out to that table, grab some information about a small group, show up to a small group this week. If you're not in a group and you're saying, I don't want to go hang out with people I don't know, take one of the DVDs that's out there. It's got the materials that I've been talking about here and play that with some people you already group with. You already hang out with somebody. Ask those people to hang out with you on purpose. Say, can we watch this together and talk about God a little bit this week? If you'll do that, God will use the burdens that you share with each other as encouragement to each other. And a burden shared is halved. Let people help you carry your burden. Get involved in biblical community with them. Your current suffering could just be the tool that God wants to use to save someone else. So let him use it. Third thing I want you to write down as you zoom out your perspective today, write this one down. God will not get you out of what he will be glorified through. Maybe God's purpose for your pain is that it's simply this. He's going to get glory. Now, why is that important? Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. When God is glorified, people see it and it gets their attention and they are drawn to him. God may use what you are suffering through right now simply for his glory. And that's enough. Genesis 45 verse 8. Joseph said, so it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me an advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. And then he goes on in Genesis 50, verse 20, and he says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many People, you meant for it to happen one way, but God said, nope, revised. Someone may have hurt you and they meant it for evil, but God wants to use it for his glory. Let him revise your story. You may be going through suffering right now that many of us can't even imagine, but God, he can revise your story. 
He can take it and He can use it for good. He can use it for His glory. He can draw people to you. He can, or to Him. He can save people through your story. He can encourage people through your story. And when that happens, let it be no mistake. The right person's going to get the credit. And it's Him. It's God. When we read about Joseph's story, there's no question who deserves the credit. Think about this for a minute. What if Joseph's story went like this? His brothers were jealous, so they beat him up, and he apologized, and they learned to get along. That's a nice story. I mean, wouldn't we love that for our children? But it's hardly as impactful as this. His murder was faked. He was sold into slavery. He was unjustly imprisoned. He was promoted to vice president of the world's most powerful country. And then he saved God's, or his family and God's chosen people, all the Hebrew people. Wow. Who gets the credit for that? One person and one person only, God. One day, everybody is going to see how things have worked out just so, and on that day, Scripture says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are many people today who are not believers in Jesus, but one day everybody will be. One day everybody is going to see, here's how God used everything in history for his glory and proved himself once again to be God. And they're going to fall on their knees and they're going to say, wow, now we believe. Every atheist is going to believe. But here's the sad news. On that day, it will be too late. We have the opportunity now. We have the opportunity now to believe by faith. Why is that important? Why isn't it okay to believe on that last day when you see all the proof? Because then it takes no faith. See, the Bible says something. Even the demons believe and they shudder. They believe it. They acknowledge it because they've seen God, but they don't have faith in Him. They've not surrendered to Him. In faith, we surrender our lives. God, everything that I have, everything that I don't have, everything that I am, everything that I'm going through, it's yours. My life is yours to do with as you please. When we surrender to him, we do it by faith. And the Bible says, without faith. It is impossible to please God. The only action we can take that will satisfy God's wrath over our sinfulness is to say, I trust you, Lord. I trust what you did in Jesus on the cross, and I trust in your way of living. I trust you to save me for eternity, and I trust you to control me and guide me and lead me in this world. I give you everything. When we do that, in that moment, our faith is credited as righteousness. We become perfect in the eyes of God. We are forgiven and we are changed forever. 
That's important because it requires faith. Belief in what you can't see, what you can't taste, and what you can't touch. But here's something that's amazing. Once you begin to believe it, you'll never unbelieve it. When you really experience faith, it will become more real to you than the clothes that you feel on your body right now, than the chair that you're feeling beneath your body right now, than the ground beneath your feet. It's more real to you than the air that you breathe. There becomes a spiritual reality that becomes reality, reality. When you place your faith in Christ, your reality will change. It will grow and it will become greater than you could ever imagine. Doesn't mean you won't suffer. Jesus says in this world, you will suffer. But I am with you and I give you my peace. My name is Joe. I'm 45 years old, and this is my story. I was an actor in New York City. Um, I graduated from college and uh, got married to my high school sweetheart, a beautiful girl named Charlene. Uh, we have three children. Uh, I was working on Wall Street when we first got married. Uh, I eventually became the global head of application integration of a Deutsche Bank. Um, but uh, I had always wanted to be an actor. I'd always had my, uh, my dream was always to become an actor. And uh, I went to college for it, although I never actually studied acting in college. I went up taking some classes on meeting a casting director. He wound up getting me an agent. I wound up becoming a voiceover guy. So for a number of years, I was doing both uh, acting and full-time working. I was playing softball on Sunday morning, and I hit what, what should have been a home run. Uh, and I rounded second base and come to third base, and the, and the coach has got his hands up. I'm like, what are you doing with your hands up? Because I hit the ball right where I had hit it that day. It would have been a home run every other time I'd ever done that. So uh, he goes, you're slow, man. I go, slow? Are you crazy? I'm not the fastest guy on this team, maybe in the league. Are you out of your mind? I'm not slow. So I started getting concerned. I went to four or five doctors over the course of time, over the course of like four or five years. And finally, one of them said, look, we're lying to ourselves if we think there's anything but Parkinson's disease. And around 2007, I was 39 years old, and I was doing a voiceover session for a huge job for, I, was, I became the voice of Fidelity. And it was so hard for me to do. I couldn't, for some reason, I couldn't speak the words that came out of my mouth to form the words. I got on the train to come back to New York, and my agent calls. I wasn't on the train for 15 minutes. He goes, what happened? Like they're saying, you're an amateur. You know, have you ever done voiceovers before? He's like, what happened? So over the course of the next couple of months, I lost every job I had. My voice just all at once abandoned me. A neighbor of mine was diagnosed with cancer. And my wife started setting up little play dates for us. Like, you're both sick, go walk together. And I was like, I don't want to, guys don't do that. Guys don't want to walk together. Guys don't want to, you know. I started walking with this guy, Al. And we, we walked a 
few times a week, a couple, three times a week. Eventually his health took a turn to the worse and he knew he was dying and a couple days before he died we, we were at his house and he said to us, I, I want to go to heaven but I don't think I've done enough. And we said, it's not about doing enough, it's about having faith in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. And his answer was, I'm Catholic, that doesn't make sense to me. And we said, well, just pray. And tell Jesus you accept him as your Lord and, as your Lord and Savior. And he didn't. Uh, the next day he passed away. But I think he really came to faith. And I don't know if it was... I don't know if I had anything to do with it necessarily, but um, it was a pretty cool experience. You know, as you go through the trials and tribulations of life, sometimes you wonder, why is this happening to me? And oftentimes we don't get those answers. Most of the time we don't get those answers. But as you look back, you often see these little guideposts, these little mile markers, and say, oh, had this not happened, this wouldn't have happened. Had I not gone through this, I couldn't have gotten this. You know, maybe if I didn't get Parkinson's, maybe my friend Al wouldn't have met the Lord. You know, life's a journey. That sounds too dramatic about it, but life's, you know, life's a journey. And oftentimes you don't know what path you're on or where you're going until you get there. Joe is a friend of mine in Summit, New Jersey. And God is allowing him to suffer something awful that God is using to perfect him. Joe is suffering from something terrible that God has used to save someone else. And he is suffering for something horrendous that today, in this room, hundreds of miles away, God is using to bring glory to himself. When you zoom out and you take his eternal perspective, it changes the way you see what you're going through. Joe didn't get bitter, he got better. Which one of those is better? Bitter or better? The answer is in the Word. What are you going through? Zoom out. Let the Lord's perspective change you, save others, and glorify Him. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening to the Invictus Church Podcast. Be sure to tune in every week for more new content. We'd like to invite you to join us in person for our weekend worship services. To get more information about our meeting times and location, please visit us online at www.invictus.church. If this or any of our episodes have inspired you to take steps in your relationship with Jesus, please let us know by sending us a note at info at invictus.church. We would love to hear how our message has helped change your life. 
Also, if our podcast has been meaningful for you and you'd like to give financially to our ministry, you can easily make your contribution online at www.invictus.church. Thanks one more time for listening. We hope you'll join us again next week.